You want to find your tribe of raving fans. I'm going to help you do it. This is the Digging Deep Podcast with 316 Media, where we help you do better business. Hey everybody, this is Justin Lamb, and you're watching episode 9 of Digging Deep, where we help business owners build better businesses. Today, I have a good friend and colleague of ours in the industry. He is a uh, great filmmaker, and he helps businesses find uh, the right audience through videos, putting them online in front of people when they want it. Please welcome uh, to the show, Justin Booth. Justin, how are you today? I'm well, sir. Thank you. I've seen you a lot today already. It's good to see you some more. I know, right? Yeah. So for those people who didn't know, uh, we are both part of uh, BNI Group, and uh, we meet every Wednesday morning, and uh, this morning is one of those days. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll probably be a few weeks from now, but uh, you're in, in a long line of queue. Um, but I, I did want to thank you. And uh, I think right now being socially distanced is such a, a big shift in our marketplace. Um, and I think one of the, the things that has forced both you and I uh, into is reevaluating how are we going to serve uh, audiences who need to still market in such a, not only an emotionally sensitive, but also a financially sensitive market. I get like waves of anxiety about it. Like sometimes it doesn't bother me so much. I'm optimistic about it. I'm like, you know what, if I just sit back and I take a look and I write, you know, I just I write things down in front of me and I'm like, look, I can, I can get through this. But when you start thinking about, okay, well, what if it gets worse? Uh, that gets a little frightening. And then you, and then you turn on the news and you're like, oh shit, it's getting worse. It's getting pretty bad. And then you think about how, what they're reporting is delayed by at least, well, it's delayed and not accurate. Yeah. And, and, and even the reporting is not accurate. I mean, you could probably add another zero to most of those numbers and, and that'll be closer to the real reality of it. Yeah. Cause you have some nations in the world that like, you know, just aren't keeping up with testing. Like, I'm sorry. I just got back from Mexico before this all broke. And that country is not rolling out mass testing in the small communities across their coast and countryside. Like, yeah. Uh, Mel, like my wife is, uh, is on a few different podcasts with some pretty high profile uh, research and scientists. And they, she's like, it's pretty grim. They estimate 1% of uh, the population will, will die from it. Yeah. And then, and then just the speed at, at which it hit all of our collective realities, let alone the businesses, but how it just brought everything to a stop. And that's why, yeah, that's why I think the the government's just going to start cutting checks and and verifying later because they can't afford to waste time verifying everyone because uh, the people that are really really in need need it now and the people that are just going to scam the system. Well, hopefully there's enough follow up afterwards to to catch them and and punish them, but the people that need it need it now, like yeah. April first. They need to pay the rent today. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but uh, the other half of that is just like how much money is going to be like transferred. able transferred and how much and how can that be sustainable? Like, like the, the deficit is already huge. It's going to be gargantuan after. Um, and then, of course, you know, the GDP is down. Um, you're going to have huge implications across the board um, with that. And and you know, industry is going to take at least a year to recover. Um, and then, you know, trickle down supplementary services like us where, where we're part luxury, part, part necessity. Yeah. You know, we we're one of the last ones like to, to recover. There's a good majority of the population that'll be hurting for money and they're, you know, scrambling just to get their, their heads above water and preparing for what they have to pay back in terms of the loans and and anything that they've they've had supplemented in the next little while so yep. it's scary it's also scary to, to realize how few 
people have runways financially to sustain themselves. Yeah, I know. And I have to admit, mine isn't as strong as I wish it was right now. I've been able to, like I said, take a wide view and go like, okay, like we can, we can do it. It's going to affect the other decisions that I wanted to make. You know, I mean, that's everybody. I mean, yeah. like myself included, it's, 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 it's the hard reality. It's just like, well, what, what can I keep active and who can I keep employed and for how long before I can't figure out a way to sustain the revenue stream? And then, of course, all the luxury stuff that we would normally buy are out the window. I mean, right now we're lucky in that we still have enough financial runway to buy good food when good food is available in the stores. Um, you know, like like quality food. Like I mean, prior to this, we 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 lived a life where dual income, you know. Uh, and, and healthy was able to sustain like, you know, at least farm fresh eggs and, and stuff like that. And a lot less pasta and, and all that stuff. Um, but the reality is, is what's going to happen in six to eight months if this continues on and, you know, people eventually will, will run the system dry. It's just, you know, like I can't imagine finding toilet paper would be this difficult. Like, you know, I first a, went and bought a roll, uh, a pack, like a whatever, a 12 pack or whatever. Uh, and it was right at the beginning when all that weird stuff was going on. I felt so embarrassed buying, I felt like I was buying like feminine products. <laughs> <laughs> but I just needed toilet paper. I wasn't hoarding. I was like, it's time to buy toilet paper. But yeah, yeah I can't believe that became a thing either. And it's crazy. Yeah. And, and yeah, some of that behavior was despicable. But I hear you saying, yeah, six, eight months down the road, those, those, those shelves, that, that supply chain could really, really get tested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's lots and of fresh vegetables and fruit on the shelves, which is, a, which is a, a comment on how healthily the majority of people are eating. And, and it might not be that healthy because there's, Plenty of fresh veg. Oh yeah, yeah. I went to No Frills on Broadway there, and and like I was like, oh, well, clearly people aren't really starving for stuff because like the organic section is still full. So ah, you know, cool. if we just pick up the litter, like <laughs> that's that's the easy part. You've ever had <laughs> exactly. So I mean, for now, we're not worried about it too too much. Um, like the business. I mean, we have. I have three and a half, four-ish months um, at the capacity we're at now. If I scale back, I probably could last to six. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping not to scale back. I'm hoping to scale up and, and adapt at this time. But yeah, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, well, what, I mean, what are, what are you thinking in terms of scaling up? How do you approach that? I, that's what I think all of us are struggling. How do you approach marketing your business right now? Well, I think it's like everything else. I mean, the conversation's organic. Um, and for yeah. me, it's, it's about trying to, to give value where I can and then find places where there is a, there's a crossroads between available funds and, you know, being able to monetize on certain cornerstone pieces of our business. Like there are lots of things we can do, um, and it's just finding the right people who have budgets because there are people who do have budgets, um, but they're just sitting on it because the world has stopped. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have healthy enough budgets. And I know a lot of people aren't in that boat and that's OK, um, you know, but at the same token, if we don't advertise and we don't push our own services at that point, you're going to sink. And so. You just have to come at it in a place that's genuine and not sleazy. Um, and you just have to be honest about, you know, your offerings and whether that you're, you know, you're going to be able to help that person, um, you know, satisfy a need at this point. And people have a bunch of fires going on in all their buckets. And if you have a service that is able to fill and put out or extinguish the fire out of that bucket, then it's okay. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're clearly helping a person solve something. And if it means that there's a financial remittance at the end of it, I mean, th there's gotta be something um, there. I mean, 
unless you're going to do it on trade or whatever. And, and that's another currency that people, I think, forget is that there's trade involved um, with a lot of things. And there's some things that, that can happen on, on trade, um, you know, that, that can ease the mind of some individuals. I mean, of, of course, banks don't trade dollars for. No, if you can trade services and goods with people you're doing business with, and maybe it's something that you essentially need, or maybe it is one of those luxury items that you need right now. Like, you know, your family could really use a new couch right now because you're spending a lot of time on it. And uh, yeah, if you're doing business with a furniture store or something like that, maybe you, like stuff like that is yep. and definitely relevant currency right now. Yeah, and and I mean, the world used to work that way. I mean. You know the reason why money is such a uh, a commoditized thing or or such a high value thing is because people actually put themselves in debt, um, yeah. and when you're in debt, that's that's the problem is is that you have to value money. Um, whereas if you had a very low debt load and a lot a lot of things that you know don't rely a ton on money, you can actually get by a, quite quite well with with barter and trade so long as somebody was up for it. But the problem is is when you're when you have to pay the piper somewhere, um, the ability for you to want to trade is different. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. You're right. When you're in debt, you value money much more. Yeah, yeah. It, if you didn't have debt and like somebody said, hey, I can't pay you financially, but I have like, like I'm a farmer and I've got all these groceries that I can supply you with groceries for, you know, two, three months. You'd be like, sure. sure. But when you have like a $10,000 line of credit out and you have to make monthly payments on the sucker, unfortunately, the, that, that doesn't necessarily help at that point. I mean, you'd be okay with box cereal um, as long as the, the hole was filled. Right. And that's the difference is, you know, yeah. 10,000 isn't really huge, but you know, there are other businesses that 20, 30, 40, hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, they're not sponsoring your kids, you know, hockey tournament or soccer tournament because like that, that $1,000 has got to go into their monthly payment, right? And there's a lot of businesses right now that are having to really consider taking on that. Like this 40 grand, the government is, and my accountant is like, you better apply for it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I need it. I mean, I think I can get it through. And she's like, no, apply for it. Like, yeah, you should. Like, if, if you can get that money in your hands, and it's safety make money with it. Uh, you can always just turn it around and send them a check back if you don't spend it. Yep, that's exactly it. It's better but to have you it justify the need because of your business and the way it's it's you you you're crazy not to get in line for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, how are businesses going to deal with that on the flip side when when it does come time to pay the piper? Now, a business that operated with little or no debt is like. I got, it's going to take me 20 years or, you know, longer to pay back $40,000 to the GOV. And that's a real tough decision for some really small businesses like solopreneurs like me and others who have, you know, a couple employees or that's a really tough burden to, to, to think about taking on. I'm going to do it. And, and if I spend any of the money, it'll be done very wisely, but it's uh yeah for others where you just have to you've, you've got rent for for a business location and employees and suppliers depending on your business that money's not going to last that long no I, and i mean this is a good topic to 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 kind of dive in on i think from a business perspective i think a lot of people really um over leverage themselves and and this actually alludes to the um to a podcast that uh, I recently recorded with Ryan about dashboards and about people um, in their businesses and they're not financially uh, ready or, or really financially viable. Um, you know, I know in, in at least the photographer videographer space, it's uh, buy the nice pretty gear up front and pay for it when, when, when go? gigs come in. Um, and now where are the gigs? And I know there, I know personally of a few, People who've recently bought gear over leveraged themselves. They're stuck. They've got these payments or no cash. Yeah. And that's a really tough place to be. And because so, yeah, you can, you can sell it back or whatever, but then your business is gone. 
but then but that's the thing is are they are able to sell it back and how many people are going to be able to buy it if a lot of us are in the same boat so they're not really able to do that and and that's really tough because you know they're going to come out of the end of this with zero to no money and you know i liken it to you know when we first started out as photographers and videographers like you know you're groundbreaking um and and you're literally going to have to start all over again and and that's a scary scary thought if you think about it i mean even the bigger players um you know are are hurting and that means they're laying off people um that means that all their equipment leases like they're either you know liable for it or you know there's going to be a, a bunch of insolvencies that are going to come up through the pipeline yeah. um you know so what does that landscape look like for photographers and videographers coming out of it it'll fit out the herd a bit my friend which is okay because you and i have dealt with all businesses do but we've we, in our industry the barrier to entry has steadily gone down and so we have steadily seen an increase of ankle biters coming up from below doing it for next to nothing uh that will this will thin out some of the herd which is unfortunate like you don't wish that upon anyone there's i, I come my mindset's all about um growth and i think if you have that mindset you can see an abundance of opportunities um and there's enough there's enough for everyone i think and you and i've talked about it before that i think there's enough business for everyone but those that are just getting into it who haven't quite got their systems sorted out and haven't quite they know how to work the keep the gear but they haven't quite figured out how to work the business it's it's going to be next to impossible yeah and i think that for people who are in that boat where they're they're when they come back they're going to be um you know offering their services for cheap trying to just recover financially um at is there's a real danger involved in that and i think that's uh, it's unspoken and i know a lot of photographers in in different circles you know poo poo on you know the the you know the 300 a gig kind of of person and the real truth about it is is you know a lot of us started out that way i mean it was a hobby it wasn't a business um and what you did was is you built yourself a job at one point yeah and perhaps our dive today uh, about that is is really when you're putting yourself at that that um level there there's a difference between having a business and being self-employed uh, and that that's a really big distinction and i think um from not only the the artist's end of it so the actual photographer but from the consumer end as well it's a really big difference and a very big delineation um you know when they're talking about a freelancer they're talking about a person who's self-employed and of course the rates are lower but then there are caveats to that too um you know they they might be lower for for a variety of reasons overhead could be lower right um and, and also that their um their own perceived value is is actually um undermined by themselves. Yeah, it's doing damage service as well as the industry. Yeah. And so I and I don't want to know what your take on that is is that I think that when a person is a freelancer and they're their own secret sauce and they don't really wish to build a business but they want to remain a freelancer that they should actually be charging a premium rather than taking it on the lower road because it is a, a lot of their own individual IP like their own intellectual property that's into it and they're their own secret sauce. I don't go to a dentist like, you know, Dr. so and so to see their associate. I go to Smile Dental to see their associate, but if I go to a specific dentist, I expect to see my dentist. Um, you know, versus a, a conglomerate chain where I'm seeing an associate of some sort. Um and there's a there's a distinction between that because I would imagine that the level of care for that particular individual that I decide to choose to see um you know has their own special abilities something that's uniquely their own um you know the way that they handle themselves their their visual identity um you know their process or whatever and that's them and it's not maybe it's not scalable as a business um and that they should actually be boutique pricing instead of 
low ball entry level like like low hanging fruit yeah no i agree i i think that's a it's all rooted in mindset you know either they're either you, your mindset's just not not healthy to begin with or you're or you're young and your mindset hasn't caught up to your ability um yeah i mean i i sort of i went that direction a long time ago like I operate as a solopreneur with contractors around me that I pull in for different jobs. But yeah, I mean, my prices may seem high for a four hour task, but it took me 20 years to learn how to do it in four hours. And you can hire someone else that's going to take them 10 and cost maybe even cheaper. But, you know, I've got the skills and ability. We've got the skills and ability because of our experience to do it more efficiently uh our systems are such that you know quality controls there so um yeah no i'm with you that's not always the case with the skills match the uh you know the the price for for younger people but there are a lot of really talented people out there doing great work that are stuck in entry-level pricing and that's their own decision. I can't remember who it was or what the quote was, but somewhere along the line, my mindset switched about that. And it was pretty instantaneous where it was like, Hey, you know what? I can charge 120 bucks an hour. I'm worth it. I do really good work. Yep. I can, I provide good customer service and a lot of my colleagues don't they're, they're, they're operators, they're technicians. Yep. And it's a really big thing about and that. And I, can, and I believe, I believe that's true. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that you should charge a premium for, for the services that, that you provide if you're providing value and the, the real truth about it. And, and I know there's a lot of pushback in, in some, some capacity. Uh, my theory is, is the market dictates how much you're worth. You can mm-hmm. influence that. So you can put out a number. You could say that you're worth a thousand dollars an hour. And if somebody buys you at a thousand dollars an hour, you are halfway to that equation, right? That means that somebody saw enough value to buy it up front. The other half of that value is if that person returns or shares you with that person, then you know if you have a viable market. Um, because you could say you're worth a thousand, a person tries it and they didn't think you were worth a thousand dollars, then you're not worth a thousand dollars. The market's telling you so, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that if you charge 120 and you're really busy, that you couldn't go to 200 to 250 until you start to see the fall off and go, Hmm, people aren't accepting me for that price point. So then you're not worth what you really think you're worth. You're worth what the market feels that you're worth because you're yeah. delivering a set amount of value that is perceived, you know, for the money that they're exchanging, whether you're a luxury brand good or your, you know, your or toilet paper, right? Like, if you're one ply toilet paper, people aren't going to pay the premium for it because, you know, your finger goes through the toilet paper when you go wipe your ass, but they're willing to pay a little bit more for three ply, you know, and it might be more than three times the price per sheet, but you know, they're able to provide value because their fingers don't stink and they're not messy after. Right. Well, what an apropos analogy, my friend. What a, <laughs> it's funny because we're done with this. And like, I think we both remember struggling with that, like early on, like, God, I want to, I want to charge more and, you know, wondering if you're worth it. And then I, I'm simultaneously going through that all over again as my business pivots to offer new services that are forcing me to learn new skills and work with new people. And again, I'm struggling with that. So sort of, well, I'm just starting out sometimes and I should price accordingly. And, you know, I'm, I'm fighting against that with myself again to view it a little more objectively and less emotionally. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong like with, that. yeah, and there's nothing wrong with charging a lot lower to start. I mean, you're in a sense that you're paying to educate yourself and, you know, as yes. you, as you mature and you acquire more clients, yes. you're going to see that ability to raise your pricing. And at that point, I think you should feel comfortable through it. Um, and I understand the mindset that goes on with that. I feel like a lot of people are like, Oh, like, I feel like I'm charging so little because like, I'm still learning it. But 
that that's part of the process is like you know you've learned some of it there's obviously more to go and of course the time it takes you is far different than somebody who's you know a veteran or a seasoned person in that in that environment so that's okay because if it, if it costs you the same like double the time and you charge half the money compared to somebody else who takes half the time and doubles the, the your net zero right you got to the same point so the value proposition is exactly the same it's just you know you've given up one for the other and you know i think that that's okay um, as long as there's transparency involved and as you improve and you speed up i think that the pricing should go um yeah. and and you and i have been in in business long enough to to kind of see how that's evolved you know in in the capacity as being you know your case videography in my case both photo and video um it's you know when we did video i started off quite low because we were we were still learning the ropes to it um you know photography was the mainstay and we grew with it and as we grew with it the demand grew with it and you get to a point where you go hmm and you pushed and pushed and pushed until you got to a point where you go okay if I push a little bit higher, I have a significant fall off. And is that fall off too high for me to sustain where I want to be and the quality of work that I'm willing to put out? Right. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, we have to toy with. I mean, yeah. for photography, I actually started right out the gates. I did my first two weddings for free um, just to get my feet wet into it um, because I had nothing to show for it. I mean, I, it was literally zero. Um, and, and I knew that starting and, and doing it, you know, pro bono, um, at the time was going to be the barrier to entry. Um, and then after doing that, I did, I personally did everything mathematically. Um, so I calculated the prices of overhead and whatever. And, um, if you extrapolate backwards, um, through 360s history, um, if you took my dollar costs average now, um, to what it was, you know, back in 2000 one um, late 2001 when I started I've grown with inflation primarily with with only one or two incremental jumps because of the breadth of service or the level of of service that we've gotten so you know if it took the unit pricing itself um, I haven't grown much more than necessarily inflation uh, but I might have added additional services and 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 width to the business so, I mean, in that case, I think, you know, being able to survive 20 years, we, we've done that modeled from a financial pro projection versus like most people who kind of just kind of come into it and just take a ballpark number and roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I've dug into my, uh, my numbers as deeply as you have over the years, but it's definitely... Yeah, I look at the sophistication of how I operate my business and offer my services now and compared to, yeah, the fly by the seat of your pants days. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you and I have been through over two decades now, uh, or getting to two decades. I don't know. I, I'm lucky I haven't, I, I haven't uh, shown too much where uh, yeah, I have the Asian, I have the Asian gene in thing. me. Yeah, yeah, I have the Asian thing going on. But this is relevant. Um, you and I have weathered through a, a vast amount of change in our industry, um, yeah. both from the type of media that we started off with, the resolutions, um, yeah. the type of camera and technology and computers that go along with it. We've also both seen uh, a numerous amount of up and down market trends. Yeah. So in your journey, what have yeah. you found as the up and downs uh, and how did you adapt through all the different changes? Let's start from maybe like a technology standpoint, you know, um, from, from the day you yeah. started till now, yeah. what did you have to endure and what did you change in your business? We had to endure, um, we had, oh gosh, I had to endure two partners that loved to buy gear. And I was the partner who was like, let's just get what we need. So I was a little more practical, but I always, um, uh, okay, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here, but I think what we did right when it came to technology was we always future-proofed ourselves. And I don't have partners anymore, so I'm speaking in the past tense, but 
and I still, I still do that with purchases I make. I'm like, am I still gonna be able to use this five years down the road? If not, I'm probably not gonna buy it. Or I'll wait and see if it's just an emotional thing. So I've always future-proofed myself by like digging into the technology and the specs and looking at other trends in the market to see, okay, is this resolution? Is this technology? Is this gonna hold up in the long run? Or is there a change coming? Uh, I had to endure like uh, a little bit of risk, you know, some, some, some lease payments, some, some financial risk to acquire those tools that did future-proof me because entry-level tech and prosumer technology wasn't gonna cut it. Uh, and so, yeah, we took a bit of a risk financially and had to endure, you know, monthly lease payments for years uh, to make sure we could still have the tools. Um, yeah, uh, as far as like market trends, we've seen everything change, man. Like when we first started out, we were shooting in standard definition. And what were we delivering? We were delivering videos on DVD. Still doing beta uh, or tapes. Well, cam, yeah, I was delivering cam for broadcast, like getting stuff put onto tape. But to my like digital clients, because that's where I entered was when digital started. So the remnants of the tape era were still hanging around for some businesses who had that huge infrastructure invested in it. But my digital clients, it was like, yeah, DVDs to play on a standard definition television in a store or at a trade show. So that, and that lasted quite a while. And then, yeah, man, I've still got some too. Oh, man, you're just sitting there. Just sitting there. But then when the social media revolution happened, I didn't see it immediately how that was going to change advertising forever and marketing forever. That's what we see happening now is like, you know, I, when's the last time you did a job for broadcast? Like when's the last time you did a job for anything other than the web? Yep, that's like, true. You know, and, and photography is different because people still want hard copies of certain things, but in video, it's like, so that's what's happening now and, and, and what, what, where it's going. I don't know. I think e-commerce is going to explode and the yeah. use of video and, and really strategically created marketing around that is going to be huge because we see the retail environment collapsing on itself. Been to a mall lately. When you go, they're bloody, they're, they're, they were the, they were like quarantine, like they were play. that you want to self distance, go to a mall. There's nobody there. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is, is, you know, even though e-commerce um, is exploding, how do you think that fares given the technology available uh, now? And, and how do you feel about, you know, our industry as, as it mm -hmm. evolves? Um, well, I, 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 th I think what you're getting at is like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like people have the power to create in their hands. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. And so where does that position us as professional content creators if the business owner can create their own? So here's what I see happening on that. I think for a long time, when YouTube was, I almost said at its height, but it's not even close yet, I don't think. But when YouTube was first starting to get like, holy, sh this thing is huge. The, what we accepted as uh, for quality, for like for, for production value started to kind of dip, I think. As more and more people put out eh, kind of mediocre looking content, but the guts of what they were actually talking about was valuable. As that content started to become more and more, people started excusing low quality. And now I think what's happening is that's starting to change. And I think the quality of production is starting to match the quality of the content or the message in the content. And so what I think is going to happen is that's going to put people like you and I, who are filmmakers and photographers first, when we up, 
when we combine those skills with the power of of marketing that's happening online right now, I think that puts us in a in a really good position. That's so an I, I, think, I think you'll see for a lot of advertisers and marketers the move back to quality to to again distinguish themselves and their brand as a premium, you know, as better than the other guys, as better than that guy that's making his own videos. I don't know. That's that's my gut on where it's going to go, and I, I'm starting to see. Yeah, I'm starting to see it. Guys like Casey Neistat, how and and what Gary V, right? Those guys, I think those two guys in particular are sort of signaling that to me, anyways, with the amount of uh, the size of their audience, and then you look at the value, their production values. It's like it's pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the middle market will become commoditized. I think, I think the general public, um, as you alluded to, has a, a lower set standard for what's acceptable, um, and they're willing to do with less, and they're trying to dump their money into other avenues that they think moves the needle forward. And I think there will be a selected few in the upper echelon of, of the marketplace that will understand that there's, there's also a component of production value and content that comes with um, a content creator like yourself and, and myself um, who have a particular sort of aesthetic um, and, and production level and quality and tools available. Um, and of course, the ease uh, or and the speed of turnaround. Yeah, I think as much as everybody really loves to do their own videos, I think <laughs> by the very nature of how lazy society is, that will keep us employed and keep us busy. But I think in terms of you know taking it to another level, I think for people like you and I we to separate ourselves we have to go above and beyond and we have to show not only production value but be able to uh to distinguish you know from you know the the 19 year old kid who is producing good content but doesn't necessarily do it at scale or at the speed that we do it like they have to be in the mood to edit that one or two travel videos and you know that three hundred dollars just doesn't spark them to do it for everybody else because it's not their, it's not them. It's like, it's, they're, they're not into it. Um, you know, and, and that's where their people are going to struggle that they want that really flashy video and they want to contract this, you know, person. And unless that person is really driven to produce and, and produce on time and on budget and on spec, um, you know, as, as advertised, they're going to struggle. They, they just can't do it. And I know, a bunch of people in that space who produce good work yeah. can't go and edit unless they feel like feel it. Like it. Yeah. And so like what would take us two days to produce takes them a month and a half to two months to produce the same type of video because we do it because we have the infrastructure and the gusto to do it and we don't have to be in the mood, they have to be in the mood. Um, and I think that's where we get to shine. Yeah, I think you're right. And you mentioned like how guys like us have to raise our game and it's like, that's where the gray hair comes in, buddy. It communicates experience. Uh, <laughs> so I gotta well, go to the salt and pepper look. <laughs> but we have like so much experience working with businesses uh, and in working with them, like, I don't know, that's what I've always liked about about our industries, when you're working with a client, you're really in this sort of incubator of their business and you you learn what makes their business tick a lot of the time, how it operates. So for me, it's really fascinating to say, oh, that's how that business operates. That's how they do their thing. And that's how that industry works. So like how I'm trying to position myself now to distinguish myself from those young people coming up in our industry is like, I'm. I'm less of a, I think I've used this language with you before though, but I'm, I'm less of a dude with a camera now. And I wanna position myself more as, as like a, a business consultant, a marketing consultant who wants to know first what your business, what, how your business is operating. 
where your challenges in that business are. And it kind of turns the conversation on its head from what the typical video, video producer is going to talk about. Like, we're going to make you this cool video. Now the conversation for me now starts with, well, how's your business doing? Where are your challenges? What are your, what problems are you having? And then, okay, well, how can we use video to solve that? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can, but that's how my conversations start now. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's probably about repositioning me, uh, like upping my game and offering more than just uh, the pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, now these pictures have to do, and we've got the tools to, to, to demonstrate how they work and how they can drive business. So uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's where you and I are, can, can offer way more than the, the dudes with cameras coming up. And so for people who are like in business, small business and solopreneurs who are bootstrapping, what is your take on their entry and foray into something like YouTube um, and, and into video? Do you like it? Do you suggest that they do YouTube? Um, you know, do you feel like they should be empowered to go and do that? Or do you think that they should just be hands off and let you do all the work? I, I, I'm not sure if I know what you mean. Like, you mean the client going in and using YouTube? And Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, if, if, yeah. We're gonna, if, if this podcast is to try to provide value for yeah. somebody who's considering it, who isn't a videographer, who isn't a photographer, um, yeah. you know, what do you, what are your thoughts about them entering YouTube now? I mean, you alluded that YouTube is not at its peak and, and like, and I understand why you said, you know, when it was at its peak, I think you meant from a content creator's perspective, but not necessarily from an industry perspective. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think I know several business owners that I, I think they're particularly tuned into their marketing and they like, they like to dabble on the social media platforms with their marketing. So it's, I guess it's going to be case by case, but for those that have an affinity for it, uh, yeah, they're really powerful tools that allow you to peel back and look behind the campaign at how it's actually performing. So for a business owner that is data driven about their business, the ability to take a look at, is it's there it's available and you ask anyone who's invested their marketing dollars in newspaper advertising or radio advertising or television advertising and you ask them how's that going for you like they don't know (laughs) i literally have one business owner who told me well i run an ad in the paper and a week later people show up on the day i told them i was having a sale and it's busy that day busier than normal so it must be working. It's like, well, yeah, that's really antiquated. So yeah, I think business owners who, who have an affinity for it and want to, I think they should jump on and, and, and experiment and learn. And uh, if they can, it's always, it's all, it's, they can take it to the next level by you know working with someone like us who can dig back to that next layer, which is actually designing the campaigns and doing the targeting and, you know, doing the backend work that actually gets those results. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's, no, go, I, let's go into that backend work. So, you know, what do you think, or what have you seen are common mistakes that people try to do on their uh, YouTube channel uh, that, that they think is, is moving the needle, but may not necessarily be, be doing what they think it does. Humor. Humor is so hard. I think, yeah, I think you have to, when you're creating content and think about the content you're going to create, uh, it's, it's hard, but you've, you've got to really focus on, on, on the, the, the content, the, the, the actual words, the information that you're passing on. Period. Um, yeah, I think you have to focus on the information, make sure it's uh, going to be of value to your customer. They're either going to learn something or they're going to be entertained. Uh, edutainment, right, is, is the, old, the old phrase for it. I think, I think that's what, what 
what people really need to concentrate on when they're thinking about creating content online. Is it going to educate and entertain in that order? Um, as far as other places, I think people are missing. I mean, I think a lot of people are throwing dollars at, at, you know, boosting posts and stuff like that, which I don't know the effectiveness of that. I think for those campaigns to really be effective, you've got to, you've got to approach it a little more sophisticated than that. Um, I feel like the, the boost button on Facebook in particular is kind of like, it's kind of like bait. It is bait. It is absolutely. Oh, I got 200 views and that excites people and gives them a little shot. And then the hope is that they'll spend more. But some people I know that's, they throw five bucks or 20 bucks and they get a little, they get one post that gets a bunch. That's not consistently moving any business into your business. Yeah. And that's, there's so much, there's so much depth that goes into the strategy. And I think people don't really understand, but, um, you know, I've had conversations with other people uh, in this space, uh, in this exact space. Um, and the amount of money that you actually have to put in to test try and to put it in is, is astronomical, actually. It's, it's quite daunting. Um, it's not that $20, $30, you know, I mean, $200 is a real, you know, like drop in the bucket to what you're really going to have to spend in ad spend in order to really... Um, figure out what's going to work for your particular, you know, niche, um, your particular voice, uh, the people that you target, um, all the things that you thought would work. Um, you know, sometimes it's not the real reality of it. And, you know, from a marketer's perspective, I don't think anybody uh, really has a secret sauce. They might have ways to, you know, segment it, but at the end of the day, all marketers uh, and, and, and somebody who tells you that they've got the secret sauce is, is I personally view as lying. So if you've got a secret, yeah, somebody's watching this and you got a secret sauce uh, and you want to put in the test, I would, I would pay to watch. Uh, you'd be able to replicate it over and over again because the real trial and error is, is you don't know what the market wants until you put it out there and then you start to curate it. You curate it, you test it, you tweak it, you iterate it slowly, slowly. And that's what, that's what people that work with us need to understand. It's like, you're going to have to endure a couple months where all we're doing is just sitting and watching and changing one little thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's sequential. And that's the thing is, is you can't change the whole gamut because then you introduce a whole new set of variables um, and you don't know which variable worked and which one didn't. Uh, that's and, right. So yeah. if you only choose one at a time, you'll be able to get, oh yeah, we changed that headline or we changed that image. We changed that one thing and oh, we got a bump. We got a bump in the numbers. We got more conversions or we got more click-throughs or whatever metric you're looking And that for advertisers is kind of a painful thing to come to grips with. It's like, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars just to test this mofo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause that's really, there is no secret sauce. You've got to, you've got to spend a lot of time on discovery and learning about your client's business. We do our, our client's businesses so that we can craft a message and a campaign that is strategic and has a really clear goal in mind. But whatever creative we come up with and whatever audience we deliver that message to, there's no guarantee it's going to work and you will have to test and you will have to change and you will have to prepare for that to take sometimes months. Yeah. But when you do get it right and your, your return on investment starts to increase, then the magic can happen. And the opportunity is still there, I think, for, for businesses in all segments, in all industries to do this, to do it right. And then when it's dialed in, smoke the competition. Yeah. And I think you're, you're really right on, the, uh, on that track. I think a lot of people don't really understand that we as digital marketers um, you know, and content creators are really still in infancy of web marketing and advertising. I know at, at one point it was really easy when it was really brand new and, you know, people like Gary Vaynerchuk 
you know, made their life on it. Um, you know, yeah. buying keywords for pennies on the dollar. But I think from an advertising perspective, I think the frustration from a consumer standpoint is that they feel like they're wasting so much money in order to figure out what that looks like. And, you know, they read about these people who have, you know, huge uptick and surge in their business with these secret sauce things, but they forget that, you know, there were the 20 years to the overnight success, um, you know, and, and that still took trial and error. And yes, those ad work, but those ads work because that guy was tweaking it, you know, for the, you know, the, the many years beforehand and it finally hit. Um, and yeah. yes, it could be successful now, but it doesn't mean that it's successful forever. Uh, and, and that's a really big part of, you know, what advertising is. And I think that's the frustration that uh, we get to face when, you know, people are looking at putting money into production and advertising is, you know, they all talk about ROI and you know, what are they going to get in the short term, but it isn't always about the short term now, is it? No, not for, not for real success. And so that goes back to you when you, when you, as a business owner, hear someone offering you the, the secret sauce solution. Um, it's a, it's yeah. It, it's don't <laughs> spend the $27 to go buy the fucking book. <laughs> yeah. Those ones, those ones that make you kind of go, ah, really? That sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah. Uh, it is too good to be true. And the other thing that like, Look, I've run into a few digital marketers over the years that I know they are in it because they see the ability to create recurring revenue for themselves because they can put someone on a retainer. You can't sleep at the wheel on these things. You can't just turn a campaign on and go golfing down, you know, wherever, or, or you've got to, you know, if you're running five campaigns for five clients, yeah, sure. You're creating great recurring revenue for your business as long as you're getting them results, but you're still getting them results because you're monitoring those campaigns and you're working on those campaigns. It's not just turn it on and let the algorithm go to work and start, you know, printing money for your business. Yeah. Uh, and the marketers have to stay engaged and on top of it and working with their clients and it's gotta be a close relationship. Yeah. And Seth Godin mentions that in his book, uh, Purple Cow, it's, you know, we in marketing in order to stand out, especially in such a a noisy marketplace uh, online, uh, digitally, there's just so much stuff being thrown at us. Um, You get those, you know, what they call the purple cow that the unique special something that uh, gets put in front of you. Um, And, you know, if you stare at that purple cow or, you know, for a long enough time, it becomes not interesting anymore. Uh, and so and that just alludes to what it is that you were talking about is, is you could set up an ad and you can have a, a great ad and it could run for a little while and you could you could maybe sit on it for a little bit, but it, it ultimately starts to decline. And I mean, you know, the effectiveness of that ad and, and things have to change because, you know, people, people get immune or, or callous to, you know, what everybody else is doing. Callous is the emotion I, I think a lot of people feel. I heard an analogy the other day from a filmmaker that I know who said uh, he saw uh, an ad for the Red Cross during a webcast. Uh, of, he was watching a TV show streaming. And that Red Cross ad came up and he admired the cinematography and the production values and all the things they did to make that ad. And said, well, that was a great ad. And the second and third time he saw it during that 40 minute broadcast, he thought the same thing But the fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth time he saw it, he started disliking it and having a negative feeling towards the red cross for not showing him something different. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you, when you build these campaigns, you, you can't, you can reach a lot of people with a lot of messaging, but if you're showing them the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not, you're not taking them on a journey, really. You have to take them on a journey of getting to know you and your service and your business and your product. And that's more than just the first thing they see. What we try to design is a customer journey that through a process of three or four different pieces of content, unique content delivered at different periods 
in their journey, they get to know, like, and trust you, right? They, mm -hmm. get to, they get to know that you're an authority. They get to build some affinity. You know, get to like you. Um, you know, you take them on that process with, with the content. So that's what we try to do in, in, in all the work we're doing right now. And uh, yeah, take people on that journey. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Um, and then, and it's funny because when we're taking a person on that journey, you know, I, I, I liken it to, remember when you're young, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but you know those choose your own story books where like, you know, you open it up and, you know, you decide to take this part and so you had to flip to another page to start they're out. In my, they're in my shopping cart on Amazon right now. You can buy a set of six, the originals for like 38 bucks, like the original artwork and everything, paperback, same as you used to get in your elementary school library. And that's <laughs> the thing. And that's what it is. And, yeah. and I think everybody, and, and everybody's so lazy now in the marketplace where they just try to put out blanket ads because they want to cover everybody. And their whole goal is, is that if enough people see what I, I have that like there are people willing to buy and it's really not the truth. It's, um, you, you have know. to make people, uh, the, the analogy I use is you have to, your marketing has to make people, uh, self-identify. <laughs> you have to hit them with a message that is, yeah, it's not going to hit everybody in the marketplace. It's going to hit that one person who's going to put their hand up and go, geez, that's my problem that I need that solution. Right. It's like being in a crowded room, uh, you know, like a, a, a stadium and, and, you know, there's a medical emergency and someone has needs a doctor and you yell out, is there a doctor in the house? Like that's what your advertising needs to do is yell out for that particular person so that they, when they hear that message go, yes, yes, I'm a doctor. You know, that's what my, that's what the analogy I think about when I'm creating, you know, campaigns and, 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 and videos for people is like, is this going to make someone go, I need that? Cause that's, I mean, uh, that's what works on me. And that's, you know, I've been caught in, in a couple sales funnels online where it's like, damn, that was really good. Like that language spoke right to me. Right. And that's, that's eliminating a lot of people in your potential audience, but it's narrowing down on people that are ready to buy. Mm -hmm. It just that reduces the friction. Reduces the friction. And instead of, instead of trying to sell to 20 people or a 20 million people, you just, you try and concentrate your message. Maybe you're delivering the message to a big audience, but the message is designed so that those particular people within the audience are going to go, yeah, that's me. I need that. And they'll click on your ad or your video and they've entered into your sales funnel and you're off to the races. Yep. And that's a, it's a, it's a really big, big part. So one of the things I'd like to ask um, my guests is what is uh, one of your favorite uh, resources um, either related to, you know, your profession or, you know, something that you just find value in, um, whether it's a book, a podcast, um, maybe it's my podcast, <laughs> um, but, you know, what is it uh, that you like to refer to um, sure. to add value into your life? Sure. Uh, okay. TV and movies. I, I've always used those for inspiration and ideas, whether it's the advertising on TV or the programming I'm watching. Uh, that's always informed my ideas uh, to help in the productions I'm working on. Um, sometimes it's like a, the way a graphic is displayed on screen. You know, I'll go and watch commercials for a while. And like, oh, okay, I'll design it that way. So just what's on TV has always been useful to me. Um, there's a podcast on, uh, what's the, what's the, uh, is it NPR, the National it's out in the States. Anyway, they've got a podcast on NPR called How I Built This. Oh, yes, yes. That's my favorite podcast, Handout, because they interview business owners of like household name brands and businesses. And they talk to them about their journey from inception to where they are now. 
and to hear those stories and how many times they failed along the way or how many times they thought it was all over and it's never going to work and they got and and to hear how they came out of it just through persistence and mostly persistence just not quitting uh is really inspirational and amazing so i highly recommend that one now i know we're entering the uh a long part of our our meeting so i'm gonna have to cut this one short today Bye. but uh thank you so much for for being on the podcast i hope people who are listening to this find value today if you did please make sure you subscribe uh like and follow you can find justin uh well justin booth um <laughs> at uh, www.visualmedia.com and uh if you have questions about video production um you know feel free to reach out to him uh he's a good friend of mine and you know as you can see we have good banter and we have good good discussions and even though we're both in the same industry i think um it's like everything else we both serve our our markets and and we both have great value to uh to provide to to clients I've always enjoyed I, our industry because you can collaborate with your competitors in an instant. So I've always, always enjoyed collaborating and talking to you. Absolutely. We'll, we'll probably pick up another one um, later on. I think, I think if this one does well and people have questions, uh, it'd be worth our, our while to hop on another one and maybe dive down a specific avenue of stuff. Anytime. Thank you.